Gagger like a dirt tan. Neck deep in whiskey farts. Hello, guys. This is episode two of Death by Music podcast. And today we're going to be talking about more people who died. And it's going to be a lot of them. So buckle up <laughs> and wear a helmet because it's about to get fucked. <laughs> Bring a fire extinguisher too. And some knee pads. Knee pads. Chest protector. We have over here the lovely Cassie. That's me. Gardener. Yes, we established that. It's right. Who's that? Who's that boy? Mr. Drew Orton. Oh, hey. <laughs> I'm Alex. And uh, we're going to go ahead and get started, I guess. Today we are going to be covering a really, really tough tough subject. And I haven't really heard anybody do this subject yet, probably because it's pretty recent. Yeah. Um, And there are a lot of victims and a lot of families that were affected by this. Um, But yeah, in our last episode, if you listened to it, hope you did, we learned a huge lesson of why it is unethical for the media to release names of victims before the families have been notified by the proper authorities. The families of Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, Richie Valens, and their pilots, Roger Peterson, they had to find out on the morning news along with the rest of the country that their husbands, sons, fathers, and brothers had died overnight in a plane crash while on tour. Yeah, and if you actually listen to the full story, you know that their deaths were caused by a result of lack of common sense, to be- like better put it, um, proper certifications by a pilot mm-hmm. who they uh, just... He wasn't even ready. He wasn't ready. He wasn't ready. So in today's story, we're going to shift into a lesson on following building codes. Yep. Uh, Another lack of common sense instance that resulted in um, a bunch of death. So today our sources included the report of the technical investigation of the station nightclub fire, Wikipedia, uh, building safety journal article remembering the station nightclub fire by Tara Lukasik and findagrave.com. Uh, we wanted to warn our listeners that some of the information and content we're about to discuss can be graphic to our listeners. So move forward with caution. Yeah, we're talking about events that are really touchy and um, it's involving death. So Listener, beware. When you go to a concert, what is the first thing that you do? Drew? Look for a place to stand. You want the best spot in the house. I go to the bar first, obviously. But yeah. then you got to get you got to get that good visual. But one thing that you're not doing most likely ever is looking for the emergency exits, right? No. I mean, with all the shootings and stuff that, that happened in venues and that kind of stuff over the last few years, maybe now. Now. But uh, no. Maybe, I, but we don't and, even know because we haven't even been to a show in a fucking year. So. <laughs> I went to one outside. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't even know what we do at shows now, but before I definitely uh, would just go to the bar and like go find my friends or find somewhere to stand. Capacity, fire code, and emergency exits, all of those things are most likely not on your mind, but they are... Only useful when they are actually enforced. And on February 20th, 2003, in West Warwick, Rhode Island, they were not. Today, we're going to be talking about the station nightclub fire that claimed 100 lives. You guys have probably heard the song, Once Bitten, Twice Shy. It's the kind of song that they play at biker rallies across America. pump you up! (laughs) Before they were great white, they were simply... Jack Russell and Mark Kendall, who met in 1977. Now, I always thought that Jack Russell sounded familiar, but then I realized that it's the name of a dog. Um, (laughs) Wishbone. (laughs) True. That's him. So Jack Russell and Mark Kendall, they formed a band, and they had some pretty interesting names. They called themselves Highway First and then Livewire, and then they played one final show under the name Wires. Um, Now, the first tragedy of this story took place in 1979. Jack Russell was sentenced to eight years in prison for shooting a live-in maid after a robbery attempt. What a great guy. Yep. Uh, (laughs) So he's really starting this off on a high note. And it really amazes me how people like this can even find a minuscule amount of success. Now, I found the inside scoop on a website called Sleaze Rocks (laughs) with two X's. Rocks. So I'm going to spell it. So they shared an interview conducted by a one Ted Hollywood Heckman for Thunder Roads, Ohio. Jack Russell goes into detail about the events that led up to the shooting of the maid. Now, apparently when Jack Russell was 18 years old, he was a real piece of work. He was pretty poor. He was doing coke. He was selling people Visine and telling them that it was liquid LSD. (laughs) 
Apparently, LSD glows under blacklight, and so does Visine. He figured that out. Smart guy, right? But eventually, people got hip to his tricks, and he had to switch up his hustle. So Russell got the word from a friend that someone in town had a bunch of cocaine and that he could easily go steal it. So he did. I have thoughts. Uh, Russell Hustle is a great, like, thing. Drug dealer company name? (laughs) My name's Russell Hustle, and I'm here to steal your coke. Um, The second thought, if somebody tells me there's a bunch of drugs somewhere that I can go steal, like they're giving me an in, like that is sketch city. I'm yeah. gonna think it's a setup. Not gonna do it. No. <laughs> you would yeah, think. you would think it was a bust, right? Yeah. It, he's a narc, and I'm getting caught tonight. Well, he <laughs> decided to go for it anyways. Wow. So Jack put on a ski mask, and he brought his friend's loaded revolver with him when he went to go thieve. Now, keep in mind, you have to keep a revolver loaded because you can tell if it's not when it's pointed at you. You can see like straight down the little. Chambers. Thank you. I don't know what they're called. Gun holes. The little gun holes. You can see straight through them. So he was like, well, got to get this thing loaded or else no one's going to believe me because they'll literally be able to see that it's empty. So um, Russell scared the shit out of his first victim who he recalls saying, oh, not again, which means he was robbed before. (laughs) (laughs) Poor guy. Yeah. So um, Russell's first heist was successful. So the next time that he was going to go steal some cocaine, he got a little too cocky and much too sloppy. I mean, he's just stupid at this point. Yeah. He can't. So Russell borrowed his friend's gun again, which was loaded again. And then Russell did a big no-no when he smoked some PCP before the robbery. Uh, He said that he remembers going into the house, but he blacked out shortly thereafter. And he only knows what happened next based on the court documents. So he begins to tell the story. He walked into the house. He noticed that there was a maid through these giant glass windows. She was in the backyard watering the plants with a hose. So he went outside and he demanded to know where the Coke was. She said... No Coke, only Pepsi. This is a line from some type of, like, just screwball comedy, Mel Brooks, something. Yeah. There's no way. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. So, But he wouldn't leave her alone. I guess he didn't think her joke was that funny. Uh, he <laughs> demanded for her to tell him where the Coke was hidden. And the maid responded by spraying Russell with the hose she was holding. And then the two began to wrestle. Sure, I think water will take down any gun. Yeah, 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 for sure. Can't get wet. <laughs> so this flagged the attention of a person Russell calls the father, who was just down the hill of the yard. So the father ran past, grabbed a briefcase full of money, and locked himself in the bathroom. Eventually, the maid broke free and managed to get into the bathroom as well. What they didn't know is that Jack was high on PCP, which gives you superhuman strength. Uh, So he put some giant cracks into the solid oak bathroom door. He slammed into the door over and over again before shooting shooting through it with the borrowed gun. Now, one of the bullets that he used to shoot through the door hit the maid in the shoulder. and But he's like, thank God I hit her in the shoulder. It saved both her life and mine. Ugh. Thank God I won't have to go her get life in prison. Nothing. I'll still be here. Right. So oh. then he woke up moments later on the ground with the gun in between his legs. The house was surrounded by the SWAT team. So he was sentenced in court to eight years in prison. But his attorney had Jack sent to the California Youth Authority because he was only 18 at the time. So they ended up reducing the sentence to 11 months plus a rehab course. He was back with the band in a year and a half. Wow. Uh, Yep. So the whole time that he was telling this story to Ted Hollywood Heckman, Russell was explaining how he was mostly focused on getting out of serving time because he knew, he just knew from the age of six that he was going to be a rock star and a, quote, successful musician. But I guess it depends on what you define as success. I think the worst part is there's literally no remorse on his end. So it like, right from the start, you're like, that's a psychopath. Yeah, <laughs> he wasn't like, thank God I didn't shoot this woman and kill her because right. I would have killed a person and that would be a terrible thing to do. He was like, thank God I didn't kill her because then I would have had life in prison. Mm-hmm. Narcissist, obviously. Yeah. Sociopath. Oh, yeah. yeah. And also violent, which is even Not worse. Good. Yeah. So while Jack Russell was in prison... Mark started up his own band. And in this one, they had would-be members of Ozzy Osbourne and Wasp, and then they've got a female singer named Lisa Baker. Now, Lisa was getting into it, but they found out that Russell got out of prison after just 18 months. So the band took a vote, and they booted Lisa. They took Jack Russell back. No! Yeah, what a, what a loser. So at this point... 
they were working with the people that made Motley Crue's debut release. They were going by the name Dante Fox, but let's face it, that's a pretty shit name. I thought it sounded like a porn star, but they seem to be doing pretty well because their first gig was at the Troubadour. Dante Fox does sound like a ginger man porn star. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. Well, um, regardless, the band's manager suggested a name change after Mark Kendall who has a head of naturally white blonde hair. He stuck his head out of the window driving by the troubadour, and a kid standing outside yelled out, there goes great white, and the band, as we know them, began. Sure. I do want to take a second and let people know that, you know, you know exactly what the troubadour is. Um, But for those of you that don't know, uh, basically, um, one of the most popular venues in West Hollywood, uh, California, right on Santa Monica Boulevard, as Alex said. Uh, it also played host to many historical acts. Uh, Lenny Bruce was actually arose, arrested there for obscenity, um, which he only said the word schmuck. But at the time, you know, that meant someone who is stupid, obnoxious, or detestable. But in Yiddish, it's like vulgar for penis. So I guess people um, took offense to that. If he could see us now. We're all Jewish, so he knew what he said. Um, <laughs> so other acts that have played there... Of course, Bob Dylan, The Birds, Joni Mitchell, Richard Pryor's been there, Neil Mm. Young, and then obviously The Eagles, Led Zeppelin, Janis Joplin. Anybody who has been anybody started or played there, which I thought it was weird because before we had talked about doing this, I really had never heard of Great White, but I also don't listen to metal. I mean, they're not not good. It's a golden age, too, for Troubadour. Yeah. 80s, 90s, mostly 70s and 80s. Like, that was like the the, like, intimate venue to go to near L.A. Well, I mean, they, they played there as Dante Fox. I think that they, they probably were opening, or maybe it was, like, a Tuesday night show or something. Definitely. <laughs> something not cool. I mean, they had to play bands that weren't They had huge. to sell 20 tickets to, to yeah, headline. Probably. They were opening up for Poison, probably. Ew. Yeah, I bet. Brett Michaels just getting it. Oh, that's a good pout face. face. You can't see her, but she looked like Brett Michaels. (laughs) (laughs) Why is he always kissing something? It's the Botox. If it's not like any woman, it's a, it's a, it's the air. Anyways, right, White was killing it somehow. Um, They were working the whole metal scene in LA that was popping up at the time. Great White's manager landed them radio slots left and right, and their crowds began to grow from hundreds to thousands of fans. But remember, they're in L.A., so their radio airplay was being monitored closely by rock stations across the country and the world. So that primed Great White for the perfect debut. They released their first album in 1984, and they began opening for artists like Whitesnake, Judas Priest, Dokken, and more, all of which are pretty rad. In 1987, Great White released the album Once Bitten, and that's when they really hit their mainstream success. They followed that one up in 1989 with the album Twice Shy, which is where Great White's biggest hit, Once Bitten, Twice Shy, appears. And that song actually is a cover. It's not even their song. It's a single by a British artist, Ian Hunter. Either way, it shot them up to headliner status. Uh, They even got the woman from Warrant's Cherry Pie video, Bobby Brown, to be in their music video. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to release a cover as your own. You know, it's just, why? Yeah. Why? But I was was doing some research, and releasing the cover song is a good way to get your name out there. Um, I mean, a lot of bands did start as cover Mm -hmm. bands. The Beatles started, Rolling Stones. um, Yeah, the Beatles did have a lot of cover songs on their early albums, but, like, I didn't even realize that they were covers. But they had a lot, and they were pretty good. Mm-hmm. I grew up listening to a lot of weird stuff mixed with classic rock, and then I would, like, as a kid, I was like, Radio Disney. And then, the like, the moment that I realized A-teens was ABBA, right. my mind was blown. I had, my mom was like, you really did not know. <laughs> she was so ashamed of me, but yeah. at the same time, I was like, shit, it's the same. Yeah. It's funny because I read a story about Paul McCartney and his kids, and he wrote Live and Let Die, and then Guns N' Roses redid their own version of it. And so when his kids were kids, they were listening to Guns N' Roses. And they were like, yeah, this song's awesome. And he was like, you know, that that's literally my song, right? For Live and Let Die. It's good stuff. Van Halen did that for me, too, with The Kinks. You really the got girl, me. You really got me now. Mm-hmm. I thought that was... Van Halen. Van Halen for a long time. My dad's like, actually, no, it's The Kinks. But Jimi Hendrix... Isn't all long along the showers a Bob Dylan cover? It's definitely a Bob Dylan song. All right, moving on for time. As they rolled into the 1990s, Great White suffered a similar fate 
as many metal groups of the time did. They tried to make the transition to grunge um, and they started to fizzle out in the 90s. And I'll never get this, but their label released their greatest hits album while they were still actively recording another album. Hmm. So I'm not really sure how you can issue greatest hits if you're still together and active unless you know you're going to be a failure. I did do research on that because I was like, why do they do this? And it's basically... It started out with record companies just trying to figure out, like it's something they can do without any approval they need from the band. So if they're not um, putting out music, they're recording or they're not doing it, but they can kind of just put it together just to incorporate sales because they're kind of like dead weight at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they're like in debt. They own yeah, they owe these it, giant loans. And- right, it generates sales, um, which could make sense if the band was fizzling, but they didn't know how much time was left to make money off of them at the same time. Uh, however, a greatest hits compilations can be viewed as a good starting point for new fans of an artist. So how many times have you listened to something new? You think it's new, but somebody else is like, oh, this song was out six years ago. And you're like, where have I been? Under a rock? So they were probably just trying to get to the trends of the time, making sure people were that were coming out of that phase were like, oh, yeah, this is a great because it's got all their greats on yeah. it. But the like younger kids that were trying to figure out what what is metal, you know? Well, um, Great White, um, they still had some charting songs throughout the 90s, but uh, the next decade is when things really started to slow down. Um, on January 20th of 2000, Mark Kendall decided to take a hiatus from Great White. They lost two other members after that. Jack Russell was kind of pissed, but it was essentially <laughs> his fault that it happened. Remember how he's an asshole? Um, he was still an addict, and he was pushing his bandmates away. So the band officially broke up in 2001. Jack Russell went on to make his own music because, like he said before, he was destined to be a successful musician. Um, in 2002, he released some pretty awful music. I actually tried to listen to it. Um, he's still chasing that hair metal dream. It's so bad. So you know how we talked about in the previous episode where we've put together pod, well, death by podcast playlists. playlists. Um, this one, um, I don't listen to a lot of metal, so <laughs> it was particularly hard for me to get through. But like this man. It's like washed up hair metal fat guy with a bandana. Sorry if that's describing you or hitting close to home, um, but probably like take an inner look at yourself. Bandana hanging out of the back pocket. Yeah, but it's on your head and on the pocket. It's, yeah, it's a whole thing. They, well, we ended up putting together this podcast or the playlist podcast. This is a podcast. Um, we put together this playlist, and the album that he released was called "For You." Um, he also had a solo release called "Shelter Me" from 1996. He took three whole years off of the band Great White to record that solo release. And honestly, like, don't even listen to it. I know we <laughs> earlier mentioned, was it White Snake, Judas Priest, and somebody else that's pretty cool? Dawkins. S- Dawkins. So let's make the whole playlist that. Yeah, I put those songs on there, though. So if you really want to hear how bad they are, um, it's like oh nails on a chalkboard. I really tried. I really tried to listen to it both as of them. I was writing. <laughs> both. <laughs> Both albums are available on Spotify, so listen if you dare. Hooray. Okay, so, I mean, if people weren't listening to his cheesy 80s metal in the 90s, they were definitely (laughs) not going to do it in the 2000s, and, you know, you can give it a shot and let us know. I guess our email is deathbypodcastteam at gmail.com. Let us know if you liked it. Yeah, this year's already shit. You can only make it worse by listening to that album. (laughs) So Mark Kendall started feeling pretty unimportant, too, since he left the band, so the pair reunited under the name Jack Russell's Great White. And this way they could play songs from the old Great White and they could also perform some of Russell's recent solo work. Hooray! Um, The two set up a tour that would run through 2002 and early 2003. One of their tour dates was on Thursday, February 20th, 2003 at the station, which was a nightclub that featured mostly metal acts. It was in West Warwick, Rhode Island. Uh, The station was built in 1946, and it had undergone several renovations, but it really wasn't in the best shape. The club was largely made of wood and housed a kitchen, a bar, a sunroom, dance floor, and a raised platform that you could consider the stage. To attend a concert at the station, you had to enter through the front entrance, through double doors, into a small foyer, and then you would pass through this little hallway, and you would come up through a single door, that opens up to a ticket stand. So you walk through the hallway, there's the ticket guy, and then you can actually enter the main building. So once your ticket for the show is purchased, you could either head towards the dance floor and the stage to your right, or you could stop at the main bar for a drink on your left. 
And there was a sunroom. That was likely where the smokers would be. Um, a local radio station promotions executive uh, named Steven Scarpelli was actually interviewed about the station, and he described it as a place where bands go to die. Yikes. Referring to the lack of prestige of the venue, among other third-rate concert venues. Now, there is a lot of information about this venue as a whole. Mm -hmm. So bear with us because we wrote a shit ton. (laughs) So according to the book published in 2012 called Killer Show, author John Berelick noted that back in March of 2002 when the Durdarian, that's a hard name to say. Durdarian. Durdarian brothers purchased the station. They knew very little about operating a rock club just in general. They very soon started cutting corners on payroll, overselling tickets, and stiffing local bands on their guaranteed payments. I feel like we know people just like this. (laughs) Do I call them out in the podcast? Name it. Name it. No. (laughs) (laughs) I'll just mouth it. Oh, yeah. yeah, I don't know what's wrong with bands. I think everyone should be happy to sell tickets for, you know, your local festival or venue. I'm just Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's like you're sitting so, on me, right? <laughs> no. So in the Duridian, Derdarian, Duridian, Derdarian Brothers ownership, one of the tasks they completed was actually lining their walls with polyurethane foam for soundproofing of the building. The brothers still worked their day jobs even when running the station. Jeff Derdarian was a local TV reporter for WHDH in Boston. Less than a year after utilizing the polyurethane foam, he actually appeared on camera to warn people about the fire hazards of said foam we talked about. Bro. Direct quotes <laughs> from the reading that was reported said, um, Jeff said, another problem is what's inside the mattress. Polyurethane foam. Uh, and then it says, fire safety experts call it solid gasoline and it ca- can cause a smoldering mattress to burst into flames. Okay, so did he know that like, I, I know you don't know this, but did he know that that's what the fuck he put on his walls? I I was thinking about it. Like he either was just like stupid or he just didn't put two and two together. But like, I mean, cutting corners. If I feel like somewhere you wrote down, I sprayed the entirety of my building with this. Maybe I should look, you know, if you're doing a report, do you then take that into your, you know, personal life? Like people that are doing reports now like on child safety you're gonna go home and tell your kids don't talk to strangers don't use this you know right so i don't know take what you learned and apply it where it matters (laughs) yep so the polyurethane foam was an insulation no it's like soundproofing foam like what's in the radio studio gotcha according to associated press divorce files from 2002 showed that heather derdarian michael's wife tried to force her husband to sell the club which he purchased and repaired with the help of putting his house up as collateral, $68,000, and he didn't tell his wife. Oh so those God. reports also show that the nightclub, excel, er, the nightclub itself was operating at a loss. So no matter they were cutting corners, they still weren't making enough money oh my God. doing all of this bullshit. Okay, well, <laughs> so that's probably why they were selling the extra tickets. So on that particular night, February 20th, 2003, the club felt especially full because it was technically way over capacity. Yeah, but it was like nothing unusual. Yeah. So looking at it from, you know, a different perspective, you'd be like, oh, well, they were just packing it in. They, maybe they did it on purpose. But it like, was great wine. They literally did that all the time. Right. So Also so illegal, patrons, super illegal. Yeah, yeah. but patrons oh, yeah. weren't even thinking twice about it. They're like, oh, it's always like yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, they, so don't, they don't know. That wasn't even like a red flag for them. Yeah, so building regulations... I looked this shit up. Mm -hmm. Building regulations in 2003 dictated that the station should have no more than 420 occupants. But the show, like usual, was oversold. And there are some reports that estimate between 440 and 458 concert goers present that night. So that is 20 to 40 extra bodies in the building. And let's think of the composition of the typical great white fan. Them's big boys. (laughs) It's a lot of guys, and they're beefy, you know, if they've got muscles. Are we talking, like, Slayer? Like, Pantera fan large? Like big boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like guys who ride Harley Davidson. Gotcha. Like 72-inch arms. and Great White was wanting to put on a particularly striking show and probably detract from their lackluster stale 80s hair metal sound, so they planned a pyrotechnic display to start the evening. And that... That would have been completely okay had the station's stage not been covered in highly flammable soundproofing foam or if the club were equipped with an automatic sprinkler system or like, you know, had fire extinguishers and shit. Although the station had several fire extinguishers on site, they were inaccessible from where the fire first broke out. 
and the employees had not been properly trained on how to operate the fire extinguishers anyways. Um, It wasn't even the first time that the building housed a fire. In 1974, a fire broke out, and firefighters cut giant holes into the roof of the building. (coughs) The structure remained intact, so after they completed repairs to the roof, they opened the station nightclub back up. Former employees of the station even said that some charred framing was still visible inside until the fire in 2003. So no more than 40 seconds into Great White's first song, Desert Moon, a combination of incompetence, improper planning, and sheer stupidity would end the death of 100 people and the injury of 250 more. Yeah, and so let's think that they had 440 people there. So at the end of it, 350 walked away either dead or injured. Yeah. It was 11.07 when the lights dimmed and the band took the stage. The stage area was an addition to the club. It was jutting out on the side of the building, so it was like a little nook that they could play in. Uh, The drummer had his own little alcove that was like kind of a setback from the actual building. Like a shadow box riser situation? If you were standing outside of the building, you would be able to see that little nook where the drummer was. Kind of like a shadow box frame, but on the stage. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he was he Sounds was up good. in that little thing. The crowd gathered around to the dance floor as the stage was lighting up. The band's manager, Daniel Bichel, was in charge of the pyrotechnic display that night. He set up four gerbs at the front of the stage, and gerbs are the little capsules that shoot out a stream of sparks for like 15 to 60 seconds. Like you set them straight down on the floor, and then they shoot up. Yeah, they're, like mammoth, sparks. they're mammoth sparklers. Sure. They just look like you're welding uh yeah. Yeah. insane amount of shit. The technical term is GERB. Almost immediately, the sparks ignited the highly flammable polyurethane foam soundproofing that was covering the walls and the ceiling of the drummer's alcove. So uh, at about 11 seconds after ignition, the band and the crowd started to notice that something was wrong. Um, they were probably assuming that the fire would quickly be put out. The band kept playing for another 15 seconds and the flames completely engulfed the back end of the stage. Jack Russell was heard on the microphone calmly saying, wow, that's not good. And the band calmly, again, evacuated through the emergency exit near the stage. So right off the side of the stage, there was a door that the band you know, went through. Mark Kendall called his wife to let her know that the show would be delayed until the fire was put out. Uh, The packed club was already filling up with smoke, and that's when the confusion broke out. Fans were wondering if this was a part of the show, like, what's going on? It just started. Now there's all this fire. Like, what the fuck are we supposed to do? Ew. Responsibility. So some of them were just kind of like, oh, I guess we have to go outside. So they calmly exited through the front door, which was on the opposite end of the stage. Uh, The bouncers were blocking the emergency exit next to the stage because that's where the band went out and they didn't want the the fans to go out there where the band was. 40 seconds after the fire broke out, the fire alarm and strobe lights finally started going off to alert people to the emergency. 911 calls were placed within the first minute of the fire and fire trucks and emergency rescue teams were dispatched to the station immediately. As people began to panic and try to leave the club through the front entrance... Traffic in the foyer bottlenecked and became heavier and heavier because remember, they had a door that you could go through to the hallway. Like there was the hallway leading up to the tickets. So you had to go back through that hallway to get out of the fucking club. Right. Like they didn't have enough emergency exits. They and they weren't letting people out of the one by the stage. Which is crazy because as a bouncer, like all, you know, security stuff aside, you're gonna let the people out of the burning fucking building versus letting the band get groped by groupies. I don't know. Absolutely. So the traffic was bottlenecking at the front. Um, People are trying to push through and they can't because of the hallway, that narrow hallway to get to the main front doors. The club started to fill with highly toxic gases from the burning fucking foam. So a thick blanket of carbon monoxide and hydrogen cyanide smoke filled the club, which can be fatal with only three to four breaths. Did you say hydrogen cyanide? Yeah. What? Yeah, when the when the polyurethane burns, All the stuff that that's is, what it turns into. Yeah, it's just the toxic very fumes toxic. coming off of it. Yeah. yeah, and then that's not even it. Not only is the air now toxic, the there was a black rain, is what they described, of the foam melting and falling from the ceiling and then dropping onto people. Yeah, and burning them. So then, once the black rain started, 
there was a stampede that caused people to start to become crushed and trampled. Mm. A Rolling Stone article described people running from the building with their heads ablaze. Mm. Patrons began wow. to smash out the windows to the sunroom in an effort to escape quicker. Those who had successfully escaped the club began to pull other patrons through the front doors as they had become wedged inside the narrow hallway during the stampede. Firefighters arrived on the scene about six minutes after the fire broke out, but the club had become completely engulfed at that point. It's made out of six wood. Six minutes. Six minutes. So the, I mean, the, the first responders were like on their shit, yeah. but it was too late. It, it was so mismanaged. Yeah. But they were fun. in there for so much longer. Like, the band is out of the building. Yeah. Why the fuck isn't someone getting on stage and saying, Because that's where the fire broke out. They yeah. can't. Or just like the sound guy, front of house sound, pick up a microphone, unmute the track, say, hey, everyone, calmly exit the building it's, right fucking he now. Could, nobody could stand. Everybody was getting out because, like I said, three to four breaths of that gas... You're dead. Yeah, you're on the floor. People yeah. were on the floor, like, when they went back into the building. I mean, we'll get into it, but uh. it was completely fucked. And people yeah. couldn't get out of the building fast enough. By the time the fire alarms were going off, they couldn't get out because people were wedged in the doorways. It was so awful. So uh, firefighters arrived on the scene about six minutes after the fire broke out. Fifty minutes after the fire started, the roof of the club collapsed by 1 a.m., all of the patients had been transported to the hospital and the fire was controlled. So this happened over the course of just two hours. Mm. During the incident, several cars in the parking lot also caught fire while the band relocated their tour bus to avoid the same fate. Nearly all of the emergency response teams in the state of Rhode Island were dispatched to help control the fire, attempt rescue of trapped patrons, and treat injuries. Now, the fire resulted in the largest loss of life due to a fire in the history of Rhode Island, and it was also the fourth deadliest nightclub fire in America at the time. I don't know if that's been beaten out yet, but at the time, it was breaking records. Mm -hmm. 96 people lost their lives within minutes of the fire, including their guitarist, Ty Longley, while three perished several days afterwards at the hospital. One more person died 70 days after the event due to complications from injuries, which raised the death toll eventually to 100. Mm. Mm. Even the survivors were left with various injuries, with at least half of them suffering from burns, smoke inhalation, thermal trauma, or injuries associated with trampling. Um, Cassie's going to go into a few of the victims and survivors' stories, and we're also going to publish the victims' names on our website because we can't tell 100 people's stories, unfortunately. Yeah, as much as we'd like to. There's actually a memorial dedication page posted on the Station Fire Memorial Foundation page under the tab 100 Angels. Among those who died were Great White's lead guitarist, Ty Longley, and the show's MC WHJY DJ, Mike Gonzalez. Um, should they have been in there even? I mean, they had an exit that was saved just for them. Now, some speculate that they were attempting to salvage the equipment at the beginning of the fire, but then they inhaled the toxic smoke and they couldn't see because it was literally a thick black layer of smoke. Um, they even say that Longley did escape the building, but he went back in to get one of his guitars, mm. which was a Deadly mistake. Yep. So one of the victims of the station nightclub fire was 33-year-old Tina M. Ayer. She was so excited that the band Great White was staying at the Fairfield Inn in Warwick where she worked. She got to meet them. She got the autograph of lead singer Jack Russell. Um, she probably rifled through his hair a little bit. I don't know. I wasn't there. Um, but she was invited to the concert uh, for free. Not only that they were overselling tickets, but how many people were in there that he was just like, oh, come to my show tonight. Oh, the guest list always stretches me. <laughs> playing a band. Every, like, every venue is like, all right, one per person, everyone. And then, you know, next thing you know, you got 18 people. people on it. According to Dennis Bellucci, the housekeeping supervisor and Ayer's supervisor at the end, she was so into the band. She talked to the band when she got their autograph. Supposedly, all of the employees were actually going to go to the concert together, seeing as how they were a small staff and usually hung out after work. Ayer and her coworker, Jackie Bernard, went into the show together, but Bernard made it out safely and lost Ayer in the crowd. Mm. Tina's twin sister Tammy said Tina just loved life she was always worried about other people and I wouldn't be surprised if she was trying to help someone else get out of the club mm. um, she could go into a bar and walk out with 20 friends another victim of the fire Thomas J. Fleming was about 30 years old when he lost his life in the blaze he loved three things teaching baseball and rock music his favorite band was Seven Dust nice that That's is the cool. first time I've ever heard anyone say that um <laughs> 
<laughs> you haven't met much, many dudes in the army, have you? I'm sorry. <laughs> I was only trying to provide support. Okay. So. Seven Dust was a shit in the early 2000s, by the way. Okay. Should I read? Just do it. Just, I'm going to laugh again at the Seven Dust part. <laughs> <laughs> What's I don't know. Okay, I can just, just leave, leave that it. out. Just, I'll just say nice, and we'll just <laughs> cut it right there. Um, noted by a memorial website, Fleming always wanted to be a teacher, and after he earned his degree, he spent several days each week learning the ropes from his former high school physical education teacher, which led him to become a substitute health teacher at the middle and high schools in Auburn. He also had plans to help coach the baseball team if he landed a permanent teaching position. Fleming was happiest being part of a rock and roll concert crowd, down in the front, singing along and slapping hands with other concert goers. Even then, according to a longtime friend, Tara, he kept an eye out for his friends at a recent Seven Dust concert. (laughs) (laughs) Put this in here. (laughs) At a recent Seven Dust concert, Fury... His friend, well, oh, God damn it. At a recent Seven Dust <laughs> concert, Tara got up into a crowd of people rushing toward the stage. He looked at me and I knew I, or he, <laughs> I hate reading quotes. People don't talk right. He went to a concert with his friend Tara and she was carried to the stage and she didn't want to be up there. So he made a path for her to get down through tons and tons of people. Um, so she thought that that's probably what he would did that night at the Great White concert that he was just trying to help people out. Of so the crowd. far, like the two people that you've mentioned, they seem like the way that you should be at like a rock concert. Yeah. If if people are having trouble, then you should help them. If they are falling down, you should pick them up. Like this is just concert etiquette, at yeah. least at the shows that I go to, especially for like metal concerts, that's what you do. Yeah. And it sounds like these two people. That's exactly what they were doing. Yeah. They saw other people were in trouble and they tried to help them out and then they ended up losing their own lives. Over top of even just people like that were falling, there was probably other people trying to help them up, but then if they were dead, you know, there's not much you can do. So you just yeah. keep walking. There was a lot of stories that were like that. Those were just a few that stuck out to me. So clearly there was a lot of stand-up people at the show that were taken too soon. Survivor Gina Russo actually wrote a book called From Ash... Or, from ashes to seven dust. <laughs> Wait, is it real? From it's, ashes a, it's a real book. She wrote a real book. Yeah, and from no, ashes to seven dust. You haven't, you haven't read it yet? Ah, so <laughs> this part actually gets really, I don't want to laugh because it gets really bad. <laughs> Sorry, it's the seven dust. So survivor Gina Russo actually wrote a book called From the Ashes, Surviving the Night or the Station Nightclub Fire. She can also be seen recanting her experience for a YouTube video series called The Station, which was really interesting to watch. Um, there's like four episodes. It was it went into a lot of detail. Um, so she went into great detail describing like chronologically, chronologically the event that happens uh, from the minute the band hits the stage to the minute she and her husband approach the bouncer yelling about something being wrong um, as the stage was already being burned into flames. Now they tried to leave through the emergency exit but the bouncer was standing in front of them, blocking them. He told them that they could, the only the band could leave through that door as it was club policy. Bitch, there are about to be no Ooh. club left. <laughs> just the doors there oh at God. the end of it. Like the whole club is burned down, but just the doors still there. Yeah. So I'm sorry. Emergency exits are for emergencies. So right. I don't, what, how was he not held accountable? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that motherfucker died too. <laughs> Anyway, On so who? The, club? The, the, bouncer, the bouncer who wouldn't let anyone go through that door. Because so it was this club is, policy. This is a story of a girl who was literally trying to go through that door and the bouncer was like, no. Yeah. So at that point, like I looked at the I looked at the whole report and I looked at the layout of the club. That was the only the other fucking door. Bouncer's door that he's guarding is over here. And then here's the dance floor is right behind it. And then all the way on the other side is where the main entrance is. Right. And was you don't it think just can, her? I mean, it was her and her husband. Everybody oh, yeah. was trying to go out that way, but he told her like that it was club policy that only the bands can go out. Of I that mean, door. that's kind of what those guys have to do. It's on fire. I understand that, but at that's the same time, whack. there wasn't any protocols in place. It's whack. honestly the management. There's no fire protocol. Like clubs on fire, get the people to fuck out of out. there. It's yeah. not like yeah. it's not like they're just. I have to go to the bathroom or like I have to go to my car. It's right. a weak time to like pull your 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 weight, you yeah. know, to yeah. just tell people what to do. So sure. Gina goes on to explain that her husband pushed her, yelling her to go, presumably to safety, and he shoved her so hard that she was able to make or like make an escape. But when she turned around, he was no longer behind her. It was just a sea of people. So she indicated that people were 
burning. Their heads were literally on fire because, mm. like we talked about, all the stuff falling down. The black down. rain. Right. So um, the last thing she remembers about being in there that evening, she was wedged between the exit and having, like, it becoming increasingly harder to breathe for her. Um, she passed out onto the actual hardwood oh floor God. of the club. Eleven weeks later, she woke up in a Boston hospital Holy from fuck. a medically induced coma to learn of her husband's passing. Oh so can God. you imagine that being the last thing you remember? And then 11, 11 months, that's almost a whole year. 11 weeks. Oh, sorry. Shit. But that's still, that's a fucking, yeah. holy shit. That's a long time. Um, that's so, like a movie, you know? Yeah. Like, I'm honestly surprised yeah. nothing else. Like, again, this was the first time I'd ever heard of this incident. Oh my God. So basically, it was, she mentioned, you know, her main goal of being the survivor in this is to keep on living, being thankful for what she has, obviously. Oh, and who she has in her life. So um, she hopes to continue living and making sure people remember the 100 victims who lost their lives that night. Oh, my God. It's so tragic. Yeah. I can only imagine the amount of PTSD right. from a situation like that. Like, you yeah. have to have cold feet about just going out anywhere, anything. Yeah. yeah, after that. Having a good time, having a couple drinks. Next thing you know, your whole place is burning. Like the, It's an insane visual. And it happened in six minutes. Like, you can't yeah. even write that shit for a movie. No. Yeah, I, I would never... I would never go to an indoor concert again. And that's saying a lot. It'd like, be hard to go places with like not carrying your own. Also too, I mean, it's what, what did you say? 400 cap venue? 420. And they had 440 to 460 I, people. You guys there. didn't check the laws back then. Like, I, I don't, it was I didn't hard think, to find that. I, did. I didn't think you were able to have pyrotechnics in with a capacity venue. Oh no, over. we'll get there. <laughs> we're not uh, done. We'll get there. There's everybody. 11 pages of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I actually found the... The incident report or the investigation that I think it was the fire marshals did. Yeah, um, I was trying to find out how many like doors they actually should have had on the building, but like stuff back then at that time. capacity should be for emergency exits, I believe. It might be. It might be in this write up. Okay. Um, but one, I know one of the, if I recall correctly, one of the emergency exits was in the kitchen, and the people who were in the club, like on the dance floor, would not have known about that. Yeah. So it was a little bit fucked. Um, There's actually a video that survived the event that day, um, captured by Brian Butler of WPRI-TV. Now, (laughs) it's it's ironic the reason Mm -hmm. why he was there. Now, the news station only released the beginning of the video because obviously the rest is super gruesome, and the footage was used to help establish a timeline for the investigation. Yeah, you and I actually had a discussion about the video recently too because it's not only terrifying to watch, but the video started circulating that night while the embers on the station were still hot. It's fucked. Um, Ironically, Brian was at the station that night to do a piece on motherfucking nightclub safety. Mm. And uh, it was inspired by the E2 nightclub stampede in Chicago that happened three days earlier and resulted in 21 deaths. Even more ironically, 10 hours before the fire, the state fire marshal, Irving J. Jesse Owens, had given an interview on the subject of a recent Chicago nightclub stampede in which those 21 people had been killed, stating that it was very remote that something like that would happen here. Hmm. Famous last words. So several days later, once the dust had settled, people were pissed, and they started to throw blame around for the loss of life. Um, People were blaming the band, the nightclub, the guys who made the foam, the guys who made the pyrotechnics, the promoters. And the band (laughs) said that they had permission to use the pyrotechnics, but the club refutes them. I mean, if they had contracts, which they should have been doing, if they were a legitimate business, they wouldn't have had to uh, argue about that. But here we are. Mm -hmm. Did OSHA show up? this? I mean, obviously, this is probably because I think they've been around since, like, the 70s, but OSHA is, like, I don't the, remember anything about that. The organization that, you know, everyone's dreading in concert festivals uh-huh. and, and and venues because they will shut you down if your shit's not correct. They pretty much protect, Isn't you know, that, um, the safety of... That's workplace-type stuff. So, like, maybe if the kitchen staff was like, hey, this these aren't safe working conditions for us, the kitchen staff, I'm calling OSHA... It's to get anything. you shut down? It's anything. It's it's the same thing as... Well, maybe they did. I mean, but they didn't even have to worry about OSHA because they had, like, everybody on their asses about this. Yeah, it's too late, I people. guess. They had the fucking yeah. cops. Yeah. Like, people are going to prison. So, newspaper articles actually mentioned that the Durdarians were in the process of selling their business, according to the West Warwick town clerk, 
the Dardarians had actually scheduled to come in the day after the fire to begin the process of transferring their liquor licensing to the prospective new owners. Hmm, those guys dodged a bullet. So the National Institute of Standards and Technology said in their report that a sprinkler system would have stopped the fire. However, the building was old as fuck, and um, they claimed that it was big enough that it was exempt from sprinkler laws. Turns out the fire inspectors never noticed that it wasn't actually exempt. It should have had a sprinkler system, bottom line. The National Institute of Standards and Technology proved through a series of full-scale experiments that a sprinkler system would have absolutely quenched the fire. Yeah, that's what it's for. (laughs) Yeah. On December 9th, the blame was finally placed. Remember, this happened February 20th. So by the end of that year... Uh, the two owners of the station nightclub, Jeffrey and Michael Derdarian, is that how we decided? Derdarian. Derdarian. As well as the band's manager, Daniel Bichelle, were all charged with 100 counts of involuntary manslaughter each. Mm-mm. Yeah, Bichelle was the only one who pled guilty. Um, he was the guy who actually set off the pyrotechnics. Um, he was sentenced to 15 years in prison. The nightclub owners pled no contest in a separate t- trial with Michael receiving 15 years with 11 suspended and Jeffrey merely receiving a 10-year suspended sentence with probation and community service. And suspended sentence means you don't actually have to go to jail. Right. But if you fuck up, now you have to go spend your sentence. So the pyrotechnician got 15 years. Yeah. Yes. Because he pled guilty. He was the band he manager. Bad. He yeah. he was the one who like actually set him off, and he pled guilty. The other two were like, "No, not our fault." I'm not gonna say like one way or the other. And yeah. then they still they only got suspended sentences. It really sucks though, because you would have think you would have thought that the band would have went over that. Obviously, they're just setting up pyrotechnics on your stage in your venue, not in your band's hometown. That. It, it wouldn't all be on him. It should be on the fucking venue mostly. Yeah, I would think. Yeah. I mean, they did get sentences, but they were suspended. Yeah, so according to the Providence Journal, there's actually still, to this day, an unpaid 1.066 million penalty holding the brothers liable for operating the nightclub for three years without carrying mandatory workers' compensation insurance oh for God. employees. They have appealed them, and the issue remains unsolved after nearly eight years. Jesus. Um, and regarding to the fire, they... Although they admitted guilt, the Dardarians say to this day that they were led to believe that the polyurethane foam that they glued to the walls and the ceiling to soundproof their club was flame resistant. Somebody find Jeff's video recording the hazards of the polyurethane itself and send that shit to him because is he crazy? What a fucking idiot. Unreal. All right. So interestingly enough, the families of the victims overwhelmingly supported Daniel Bichel, the manager who who got 15 years. They supported him throughout his sentencing and his trial, despite the loss of their loved ones in the fire that he started. Um, A lot of them actually wrote letters in support of him, and they did not place the blame on him for the events that transpired that night. And while crying during his sentences, <laughs> while crying while reading these sentences. Is that you? <laughs> Me. While crying during his sentencing, Jeffrey Derdarian told a packed room that there were many days when I wish I didn't make it out of that building because if I didn't, maybe some families would feel better. To those families, I am sorry that I did make it out. I know you would have liked it if I died too. Ew, That's he like sounds like a little fucking Gaslighting bitch. them for feeling bad about the loved ones they lost. Because he's still wish alive. I would have died in that yeah. club, so you couldn't. Save nah, you wish you would have died, so you didn't have to go to fucking trial and face everybody, bitch. <gasps> yeah, he's the one that should have gotten fifteen years, not the pyrotechnic. Yeah, well, yeah, technician. Four days after the fire, a memorial service was held at a nearby church where thousands were in attendance. Governor Donald Kersieri mm-hmm. put a stop to pyro displays at venues with a capacity of three hundred or less. Oh, there you go. There you go. Oh, there it is. Honestly, banning the use of pyro indoors in general would have been more helpful his band placed his band was placed while the capacity of the station as we mentioned before was 420 so even in that time that could have still happened yeah. to that venue it was like <gasps> too little too late I don't think these people can read and no it was, like the new law wasn't even protecting it wouldn't have it. even applied right so it still would have happened five months after the fire great white started out on a benefit tour. Wow. Um, they were saying prayers and giving some proceeds to the station family fund. Um, they had to give it up in 2005, though, because of Russell's medical reasons, a.k.a. addiction to alcohol and cocaine. He entered rehab, and he did not perform again for another two years. Wait, they went and toured, like, their same region as they were... 
Like just coming off of this? It was, like, they said it was five a, months, yeah. They said it was like a benefit tour and they were donating some of the money. Some I don't know it. that it was all of it. I wrote some of it. So <laughs> I feel like I did my research Abortions. and it was only some it of it. It sounds pretty tasteless to me to, to tour that using that as like a let's get let's get people in the in the door like it's not even the last time they this. try doing it yeah <sighs> they try to do it There's again more. so the Darian brothers actually set up a nonprofit the station education fund to help the seventy six children who lost one or both their parents in the blaze the nonprofit and its website bragged that it had gotten local colleges and universities to actually pledge more than twelve point eight million in scholarships however. The fund has given out little money and hardly any of the children are applying for the scholarships. Go figure. According to USA Today, only three students from that have attended college with the tuition with help from the program since it started in 2007. Um, and the scholarship valued so far just under $70,000. Actually, one of the students withdrew less than a year or less than a semester after starting saying she couldn't afford to continue going what? there. Well, you know, they had to pay their salaries and stuff before they gave the kids money for college. <laughs> yeah. So I w actually went to look and see if I could find an active website for that fund. But and right now in 2020, I'm assuming it's not active anymore. Wow. Yeah. Sure. So um, as we mentioned, when the whole thing started, when the whole fire broke out, they were singing this song, Desert Moon. Right. Um, Great White did not sing the song, Desert Moon, again until 2009. Um, two years after the fire, Russell and Kendall appeared on Larry King Live with some survivors and their guitarist Ty Longley's dad. Um, they donated a bunch of money, they talked about their lives, and they didn't claim any responsibility for the incident. Today, the site of the station nightclub is cleared. There are tons of memorials placed by loved ones of the deceased. And right now, it's still open to the public with memorial services held every February 20th. Wait, it's still a burned down building? Um, they cleared it. It's, so yeah, it's like it's a cleared lot. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. At least $115 million in settlements have been paid or offered to victims and their families. And here's what happened afterwards. Amendments were made that required automatic fire sprinklers in all nightclubs in similar locations with 100 plus occupants. Ooh. Staff was required to be upped. If your club had a new occupancy rating, you had to add more exits. In 2013, Jack Russell decided he was going to have a 10th anniversary fire benefit show with all of the proceeds going to the Station Fire Memorial Fund. The fund people were like, go fuck yourself. And please don't put our name on that because they were still pissed. Um, it's clear that wherever this guy goes, bad stuff follows. Yeah, according to their website, the mission of the Station Fire Memorial Foundation is to ensure that their loved ones received a proper Memorial upon the sacred ground where their lives were so tragically cut short. So having Jack Russell, Russell, Russell throw together a benefit show claiming no responsibility for the intimate, uh, no, intimates. <laughs> <laughs> I can't read. Uh, so having Jack Russell throw together a benefit show after claiming no responsibility whatsoever for the incident. Yeah, I don't think it was in good taste for him to decide to do that. Oh. Plus he's a douche in general. Yeah, from start to finish, Jack Russell long story short, is a dick. You don't get to do all the shitty stuff you've done in life. Um, be one of the reasons why 100 people died and then not even acknowledge, express remorse, or like feel sorry or take responsibility for any of it. Like, Yeah, you're an adult. <laughs> what take responsibility fuck? for sure. your actions. Oh, that's not good. Hmm. That's what he said. Oh, yeah. When we got well, on stage. Well, not like, hey, everybody, don't think this looks good. Maybe right. you should go and we're going to go and we'll see if this we can play still after. I don't know. I'd be freaking out. The stage isn't on fucking fire. Yeah. I'd what be like, fuck? everybody get out of here. Get out. Get out. That's what's <laughs> yeah. crazy. That's what's good about fucking microphones, like in a venue. Like, you I mean, if you think about it, in what other scenario has that happened or something like, you know, when the Ariana Grande shooting thing happened, you know. Nothing was said. She just ran off stage. Well, because people don't, they don't know what's going on to, to be the definitive voice to say something. I mean, in that, in, in that instance, he was the only person who could have been like, everybody, something's going on. Please exit. Right. Yeah. Any way possible. Get out of here. I've never personally been in that situation, but after, uh, you know, Eagles of Death Metal and right. all that stuff happened, like when I, before I played a show, like I thought about it a little bit more. When I was on stage, I'd be like, where is my exit? What am I going to do if yeah. this happens? And like, it kind of forced you to think that way a little bit more. 
Um, but still, like the irresponsibility of that, like the carelessness, the selfishness in, oh, this isn't good. Right. All right, mm-hmm. we're going to leave now. Bye. Yeah, and then they right. literally just got in their bus and like moved their bus away from the building because they were like, oh. I don't want it to catch on fire like these yeah. other cars. Right, these what? people who came to our show and You're paid money. You're the lead singer. You are the communicator yeah. to the audience. What I thought was weird too is because I was actually... We talked about the doors before, but I was actually looking into what the sprinkler codes should have been because it said that they thought the building was too big to have it. What building? What would? How does that make any sense? I don't. All know. buildings have sprinklers, right? right? Regardless of the size, like the bigger it is, the more likely you should have to have Schools a sprinkler. Schools have sprinklers, yeah, and they're fucking huge, humongous. It just doesn't. It yeah, doesn't. But make I could any not sense. find any. Code. The fire exit thing's huge, and then yeah. I mean I don't know what it was like with the fire doors and the fire. The fireproofing, like you're not allowed to have fucking pyrotechnics if you don't have, you know, fire resistant drywall. Well, he thinks that the or, that the polyurethane was fire resistant. That was his totally. argument at the end of it. He didn't know any difference. When you have a full video of him, you know, prior to this incident, he's saying how bad it is while uh, he was working for his TV station. Yeah, I didn't know any of that. I yeah. I looked at the uh, the floor plan, like I said from the report. And they had, I think it was like two fire extinguishers, but one was like in the kitchen and the other one was near the front entrance and the fire broke out near the stage. So it's it wouldn't have even helped anyways because that stuff is so flammable. Like once the polyurethane at the stage and the drummer alcove caught on fire, it's too late to grab the fire extinguisher from the front, run through the crowd sure. and then yeah. get it. Like you're already fucked. Well, I do know you are supposed to have a fire extinguisher at every fire exit, like right on the wall. There's even There should like have been one right next to the stage. For sure. Because yeah. that was a fire exit. Yeah. The door was literally right off of the stage. Yeah. Um, no excuses. The whole, the whole situation was fucked. I yeah. just can't imagine. And if you watch the video too, you can see like within a minute, yeah. the smoke coming down, it was seriously like a thick, black fog that was coating the first like the top half of the room like i don't know if you guys have ever messed with that material but like if it gets a little old or if you do burn it it crumbles it it literally turns into dust yeah yeah i don't i I guess the newer stuff they have is like fireproofed but like the stuff back in the day he probably just saved a shit ton of money because it's expensive yeah audio like orlex i'm sure it wasn't orlex film like that shit is really pricey like, he probably just got whatever he could. Yeah, they were cutting corners where they needed and, to, yeah. Yeah. Or where they wanted to. Well, there it is. <laughs> First time I've heard it done. The Station Nightclub Fire. Really, really tragic event from 2003. We're kind of like, there are a lot of shows like what we've talked about, the Ariana Grande one, and then yeah. the Eagles of Death Metal show that have been so recent that we almost don't want to talk about them yet because they still have like a really great effect on people's lives. And the Station Nightclub Fire is no different. I mean, it was in 2003, so it was about 20 years ago now, but it's not like those people who were affected aren't around today. They're still alive. Definitely are. And their kids are around and... It's just, it's really fucking sad. Yeah. Um, The huge, just gross negligence on the part of everybody involved is just fucked. So um, takeaway, if you go to a concert and you see a fire breakout, or if you go to a concert and they're using pyro inside, and it's like a very small venue, get the fuck out. Like, it is not worth it. That's it's not worth it. gone somewhere where they've done that inside. So irresponsible. Yeah. Love and God, just fucking so much compassion for the people that had to deal with that. And like you said, the families. Fuck that guy. Yeah. <laughs> No matter what, <laughs> let's, let's end it on that note. <laughs> fuck that guy and fuck Great White too. <laughs> thanks, thanks for listening. That was our second episode and it was really sad. So yeah. very sorry. To take your mind off of the tragic events. I guess you could head over to our Spotify account and listen to our playlist full of Jack Russell taking his three-year hiatus from Great White and um, making dad rock. Yeah, I think let's revise it and like take all of Great White music Wait, no, let's put let's leave on once bitten twice try and then take everything else off because fuck that guy. And if you want to listen to it, fine. Listen to it on your own, but we're not giving him any sort of platform on this show, I don't fucking think. So I had to listen to that. Listen, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Go listen to Judas Priest or somebody who's like actually good. Um that being said, you can also find us on social media 
and stuff. Um, we have a Facebook and an Instagram and a Twitter and an email. Wow. We're so social. And they all, we got so lucky that they all have the same name. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so just search for Death by Podcast Team on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And then our email is deathbypodcastteam at gmail.com. I tried to put death by dot, dot, dot podcast oh, on Facebook yeah. and it was like, uh, uh-uh, too much punctuation. <laughs> I can't do I it. Don't we don't know so. what periods are. <laughs> you can have one, but can't have three. Sorry, brother. Damn. That's basically what they told me. R.I.P. Is that what you said? Rest in peace. <laughs> sound like I'm constipated. <laughs> That's the way I like it. All right. That's the way you like Cassie. Constipated. Sayonara, friend. Constipating and sounding like she's in The Conjuring. <laughs> All right. I like you full of shit. Scary as shit. This has been going on long enough. May. Later, nerd. Music by Demons, at Demons Band on Instagram. Mastering by Adam Dobb. Graphic arts by Mike Johnson. Writing by Alex Motler and Cassie Gardner. With assistance from Drew Orton.